Hi, this morning, by the way, my name is Donna Muter, and I'm one of, one of the teaching team, just in case you, if there's anybody here that doesn't know who I am. Um, and uh, so, let's pray. Father, the most miraculous thing is going to be talked about today. It is stunning. It is so beyond our comp- finite comprehension. And we pray that the this foundation stone of truth and reality and real reality will be placed firmly <clears throat> in the souls of the women who are here today. That you will keep talking after I finish talking, Lord. That you will keep talking and talking and convincing them and giving this, giving them this picture, this understanding of who our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, really is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever encountered someone for the first time and you've had a... Volume? Does it help if I pull up closer like this? Okay, we'll, we'll try that first. That means I have to do this because I can't see my text. <laughs> Have you ever encountered someone for the first time and had a great conversation with that person? It was candid, your conversation was unguarded, it was really enjoyable and very memorable. And you walked away thinking, gee, that was, that was so nice. What an interesting person. And you log them in your mental data bank as someone that you liked. And then a while later, You open up a magazine, maybe it's a Fortune 500 magazine or something. Yeah, like we read those. But anyway, let's pretend that you do. And and you see this article. And by golly, there's a picture in there of the person that you talked with, the person that you met and enjoyed. But as you're reading this laundry list of who they really are, you go, wow. This person is the CEO of a major global company. They're downright powerful. They hold a place of great authority. In fact, there's no position higher up than the position that this person holds. But they were so real. They were so unassuming. And they not only related to, but they enjoyed talking with little old me, you might think, as you're reading about them. Well, sisters, this is where we find ourselves today as we begin this lesson. Lesson 2, Colossians 1, 15 through 2, 5. And it's titled, Rejoicing in Christ, but I subtitled it. And my subtitle is, Who is Jesus Really? Just like the person I described here, he is so us. Approachable, knowable. But today we learn that he is in fact so much more. Today we just touch the tip of the iceberg of the so much moreness of Christ. Before I go on, I'm going to need that card that's in the middle of your table. I thought I brought one up, but I can't find it now, so thank you, thank you. I'm going to refer to this. This actually has on it everything I'm going to talk about today. There's a lot more in that passage, but it's so uh, much more that this is all we have time for. 
So, the backstory. Before we go forwards, let's go back just a bit and review what we know about this letter. Paul is friends with Epaphras, a man whose hometown is Colossae. I hope I said that right. <laughs> Colossae is what we would call today a drive-through town. It's one of those towns that you drive through on your way to somewhere else. You might stop for gas or water or to water your camel or to have a falafel burger, but then you're on to better places. And around here, that would probably be Raleigh or Chapel Hill, but there, at that time, it was Laodicea and Hierapolis. Well, Epaphras had shared the gospel with those in his hometown, and now there was a thriving church, and they were doing well, and they were growing, and they'd been taught very well. But Epaphras, who's visiting with Paul, and Paul is imprisoned in Rome at the time of this writing, he's concerned about something that's happening to this body of believers that's having the effect of derailing them. They're being infested by false teaching. On the one hand, they're influenced by those who lead them and teach them of this new, relatively new, early Gnosticism. And they tell them that Jesus is not God. He is not the supreme divine being, but he's an emissary of the deity. And on the other hand, they're influenced by the Judaizers who come and they say, Jesus, yes, but not just Jesus. You also must keep the law. You must be circumcised and adhere to food laws and observe the feasts and etc. And what effect does that have on their understanding of who Jesus is? Well, something like this. My son, who was raised in the Christian faith, is now, unfortunately, and I've spoken about this before, a proponent of New Age teaching. I got drawn into that. And one day I was visiting with him, and he pulled out a small book, like about this big. And um, it was full of quotes. And it was done in beautiful fonts and beautiful colors. And he was eagerly reading these, these quotes. It was filled with sayings of teachers of many religions and philosophies. And, and it, but it was one of the New Age texts that he had bought. It was very syncretistic. And by that I mean a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of everything, including a verse from the Gospel of Matthew. Well, what is the effect of taking a verse from the Bible and including it in a book like this? It minimizes. It minimizes. It reduces and shrinks down the powerful word of the living God of the universe into something that is just a saying. It results in something that's a pithy saying, like the apples of gold, which is filled with lots of things like that. It was selected because in this context, it could reinforce the teaching of the New Age beliefs. It's like hitting that minimize button on the computer. It shrinks it down, it minimizes, and it disempowers it. And now, that scripture is just like the rest of those good sayings. And that's what the false teachers were doing, essentially, to Jesus. He was but one of the, te- of the deities. He was a good person. In fact, the Colossians were breathing the ether of early Gnosticism. 
It was a prominent, it became actually a prominent heretical doctrine that was taught, that taught that the world was created and ruled by a lesser divinity. They taught that Christ was an emissary of the remote supreme divine being, and that he was sent to bring knowledge of this supreme being who enabled the redemption of the human spirit. Well, we could understand why they were confused. And actually, when I was thinking about this, I was going, golly, out in my garden, I've got all the plants in there, the vegetables, whatever, that I want, that I know should be in there, that I want to grow. And when, but then, I had this experience of having these weeds that looked so much like the thing I planted that I had to look, and I had to look again. And it was just, it was so confusing. Because that weed that wasn't supposed to be there, it was just close enough to what I had planted that I was afraid to tear it out like I should have. And actually, I I figured it out and eventually did. Well, that's kind of what this Gnosticism was like for these believers. It's so close, but so far away from the truth, as we're going to find out. So Paul writes this part of his letter to address that minimization and to shore up the Colossians' understanding of who the Holy Son of God, whose gospel they trust in, who he really is. Um, His one great desire, which he expresses clearly in the letter, is that the Colossian believers would grow. He wants them to grow into into full Christian maturity. And his prayer for them is that they'll grow in the knowledge of God, in holiness and spiritual power, Holy Spirit spiritual power. And that they understand that Jesus is indeed two things, supreme, which is being denied by the Gnostics, and sufficient, enough, which is being denied by the Judaizers. And so he sets before them a gift box, a gift box in the verses of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in verses 15 and through 20 of chapter 1. I say that because when I was reading this hymn, I was thinking of the large cardboard box that we would receive for many years when my children were young. And it was sent at Christmas time. When we opened it, we saw that it was filled with these beautifully wrapped gifts, which we took out of the box one by one. And I want to unpack this scripture for you today just like that. Just take them out one by one. Each of these truths about who Jesus really is, we're going to open like those individually wrapped boxes. However, unfortunately, we only have time this morning to open three of these boxes. But there's more. We're essentially only going to look at half of what we know because it's all we have time for. But I am hoping that you will. I'll give you clues about what the next half is, but I'm hoping that you will go there to the next half in your small groups today. All right. So uh, let me get back to this. Um, We're going to open the box, the three boxes we're going to open today, the gift boxes, because our big box is called our understanding of who Jesus really is. That's the big box. And the little box, the three little boxes that we're going to open today, the first one is called image. That's what's on the tag. And the second one is called ruler, R-U-L-E-R. That's on its tag. And the third box is labeled sustainer. 
And the other boxes, the ones we're not going to open today, are head, victor, fullness, and peacemaker. So, it is of utmost importance, Paul was saying, it's of utmost importance that we understand who Christ really is. Our meek and mild understanding of Christ, it doesn't go the distance. It only gets us maybe through Christmas. (laughs) In fact, our perseverance in the Christian faith is in direct proportion to the clarity with which we see who Jesus really is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. So let's begin opening this box and pull out these gift boxes. Who Jesus really is. The first gift box. Image. Right here on your card it says, He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15. Jesus is the visible image, what we can see, of the invisible God who we cannot see. So, on your computers, you op- open up the, your uh, computer, you're sitting there, it's got all these little pictures on your desktop, right? And what do we call those? We call them icons. We call them icons. This is, that, that is an English word that has been taken from the Greek word for image as it's used here, icon. And when we view our icons on our computers, we know that is when we look at that little picture, is that all there is? Is that all there is there? It is just a picture that when we double click on it, this whole thing opens up to us. So much more. So much more. Well, Jesus is the visible icon of the invisible God. He to us is God with skin on. When we see him, we see God. And that's why when Philip in John 14 asked him, show us the Father, Jesus said to him, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's not just like I look like him. It's like he's the exact, perfect representation of God to us. So if we want to know what Jesus is, what God is like, we have to look at Jesus. He's the radiance of God and the exact imprint of the nature of God. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking, golly, Moses wanted to see God, didn't he? He wanted to see him. And God had to tell him no. Because God told him, I don't know how he did this. He must have just spoken to his heart. I don't know how he heard God, but he heard him. And he said, look, uh, if you were to see me, you would burn up. You'd burn up to a crisp because my holiness would just burn you right up. He said, so here's what I'll do. I'll let you just see the back part of me. So he tucks him in this rock in Mount Sinai, tucks him away really, really well, and he goes by. He just passes by quickly. And uh, and Moses exclaims, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and peace. And so, like, did Moses describe what he looked like? Did he say, oh, he's really tall and he's got brown hair and blue eyes and he's... Did he say those things? He talked about the nature of God. He talked about to know God is to know mercy, to know grace, 
to know these things. And this is what Christ brought to us. Now, Philip Yancey, I'm going to read all this whole paragraph to you. He wrote this book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in it, he talks about the deity of Jesus. And he says it was kind of like this. He says, um, to try to explain it, he says uh, that he has a saltwater aquarium. And he said, I learned about the incarnation when I kept a saltwater aquarium. Management of a marine, marine aquarium, I discovered, is not an easy task. I had to run a portable chemical laboratory to monitor the nitrate levels and the ammonia content. I dumped vitamins and antibiotics and sulfur drugs and enough enzymes to make a rock grow. I filtered the water through glass fibers and charcoal and exposed it to ultraviolet light. And you would think, in view of all the energy I expended on their behalf, that my fish would at least be grateful. (laughs) But not so. Because every time my shadow loomed over the tank, they dove for cover into the nearest shell. And they showed me the only one emotion, fear. Although I opened the lid and dropped in food on regular schedule three times a day, they responded to each visit as a sure sign of my designs to torture them. I could not convince them of my true concern. To my fish, I was deity. I was too large for them. My actions, too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy, they saw as cruelty. My attempts at healing, they viewed a destruction. To change their perception, I began to see, would require a form of incarnation. I would have to become a fish and speak to them in a language they could understand. Well, this is Philip. A human being becoming a fish is nothing compared to God becoming a baby, and yet, according to the Gospels, that is what happened at Bethlehem. The God who created matter took shape within as an artist might become a spot on a painting or a playwright, a character within his own play, and God wrote a story using only real characters on the pages of real history, and the word became flesh. Sisters, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you've ever wondered if God is compassionate, think about the life of Jesus. Look at him. Look at him in the life of others today. If you want to know if he's just, if God is just, look at Jesus. Does God care about you? Does he care about me, I wonder sometimes? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the revealer. Jesus shows us the Father. The second box. Let's pick up the second box. The second box is Colossians 1, 15 and 16, and it starts with the latter part of verse 15, which says, He is the firstborn over all creation. However, this box is also, it's labeled, Jesus is the privileged ruler over all creation. Uh, Arians in the first century to Jehovah's Witnesses, they've misinterpreted this scripture. Uh, And it has actually been 
been misinterpreted through all of church history. And they look at this verse and they say, oh, you see, Jesus is the firstborn. That means he is created and he's not eternal God. And interestingly, it's the same heresy that Paul was having to deal with, that Paul was having to deal with in Colossae. But the word for firstborn, when it's used here, is primarily, it means the first. The first in rank and in position. And the rest of what we're going to talk about today is about position. The firstborn in both Jewish and Greek culture was the one who had the right to the inheritance. And the person that occupies this position is not necessarily the one who was born first. And I, I was watching a YouTube video. I don't know how I came across this, but I was just interested. And it's about the Rothschild family in Europe. And the Rothschilds are this prominent Jewish family who came, who, who, who lived in a really small town, but they became, through their wisdom of managing money and doing things like that, um, they became nobility. <laughs> and they, um, but, but unlike European nobility, who always select the first child born in their families, or son rather, to inherit, the Rothschilds don't do that. They go with the one who's most qualified with the skills to lead the position of their family. So who's got the most financial skill and management skills, and it doesn't matter when they were born, they become the firstborn. Uh, so here Paul is saying that Jesus is the ruler and inheritor of all creation, and he is the qualified one. He is the worthy one. And they show that he is in that way the firstborn over all creation. He's over all creation. He is the creator of creation. So look at verse 16 and take note of all the positional words that you find there. For by him, nice prepositional phrase, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's the architect or agent of creation by him. This means creation was his idea. In an ageless, timeless chaos, the second person of the Trinity stood and he called it into being. It was his creative power his imagination. He is the one in whose eternal mind the blueprints for every nook and cranny of the cosmos were conceived. And it, this verse describes the extent of his creation. Everything, all things, everywhere, heaven and earth, even in every dimension, visible and invisible, whether it's the massive galaxies light years away or the dust mites that are beneath your feet. The all things includes what you can see and what you can't see. Whether visible and intangible, like a mirage or a beam of light. Whether invisible but tangible, meaning you can touch. Like a summer breeze or you can feel, or the heat of the sun. Whether visible and intangible, or tangible, like an oak tree, a book, or a baseball, or even things that are invisible and intangible, like a proton, 
or gravity or a feeling or a dream. He created it all out of nothing. Nothing. The Latin phrase, ex nihilo, is what the Christian church uses. It means out of nothing. The thrones, dominions, rules, and authorities, that refers to the hierarchy of angels because they also have an organized structure in the angelic realm. And there were people that were teaching, they were trying to teach that, that the this Colossian that the Colossians should worship angels. Well Paul says Jesus created the angels. He's also the builder of creation, that is the through him. Creation was his idea and he built it. Creation came to being through his power and his ability. And Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle John says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. The writer of the Hebrews also wrote Christ, of Christ. He wrote, through whom God made the universe, the Son. The Son is the creator. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. False teachers thought that Jesus was an angel. And Paul makes it perfectly clear, Jesus made the angels. And thirdly, he's the owner of creation because all these things were made for him and for his benefit. Everything exists to show off his glory and he will ultimately be glorified by all creation. So he's the reason. He's the goal. He's the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end, the consummation, and the culmination of every molecule that moves. And we are created for his glory. So C.S. Lewis described the moment when Aslan the Lion, the Christ character in his book, The Magician's Nephew, sings the kingdom of Arnia into being. And it begins at the end of chapter 8, if you ever want to look at this, because I remember when I first read this, I was stunned uh, when I read this. It was, I'm only going to read you a little tiny bit of it, but I hope you'll get to to look at it. It's breathtaking, and, and here's just a little bit of it. This is directly from the book. It says, In the darkness, something was happening at last. The voice had begun to sing. It seemed to come from all directions at once. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was beyond comparison. The most beautiful noise he'd ever heard. It was so beautiful, Diggory, character, could hardly I hope you'll get to to read that because the author, C.S. Lewis, clearly gives an ex nihilo creation, a creation out of nothing that can only be done by God and no one else. It's a free act of God, the act of God whereby he, according to his sovereign will and for his own glory in the beginning, brought forth the whole visible and invisible universe without the use of pre-existent material and thus gave it an existence distinct from his own but always dependent on him. And the third box we'll open today is called Sustainer. He's the pre-existent, meaning he existed before, sustainer of the universe and the 
we're looking at verse 17. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's not only the perfect revealer of the Father, and not only the privileged ruler of creation, he is also the pre-existent sustainer of the universe. Jesus Christ existed before any of the creation, and because we're locked in time and space, but, but he is not. God is not. Jesus Christ is the divine glue of the universe that holds all together. And I read this little article from Discover Magazine, and it's titled, The Glue That Holds the World Together. Robert Zinnig writes a lot of technical things, but he comes about to this statement. He says, the more we learn about subatomic particles called gluons, the more the universe seems to be made out of nothing at all. In fact, it gets almost mystical. Jesus, who created out of nothing, holds his creation together. Not only is he agent of creation in the beginning and the goal of creation in the end, but between the beginning and the end, during the time that we're, we now know, it's he who is holding our world together. All the laws by which this world is order and not chaos, it's an expression of the mind of the Son of God, the law of gravity, the laws by which the universe hangs together. They're not just scientific laws. They're divine. So Jesus is the beginning of creation and the end of creation and the power that holds creation together. He's the creator, the sustainer, and the final goal of the world. And that's only half the picture, but that's where we have to stop. Because um, there's, there's other things that are talked about then. And, and it talks about he's not only the agent and lord of creation, he's the lord of the new creation, that's me and you, his church. He's not, he is a full and not a partial embodiment of Christ, like the false teacher said. He differs from the supposedly divine emanations in the world, such as angels. He is more, so much more. So now, he's so much more than we, than what we think we know about him. And Paul prayed fervently for the Colossians because the influence of the false teachers was daunting and it was ever-present. It was like air. It was like the atmosphere. We couldn't get away from this. And in our culture today, we have the same thing. We have an ever-present atmosphere, and it influences us. And it influences us so much we don't even know. It's in everything we read. It's in every television program. It's, it's all around us. It's in the friends that we talk to. It's in our education system. It's everything. And what is its name? It's postmodern secular humanism. It's a worldview that places man in the highest entity, in the position of the highest entity, not Christ. It denies the existence of a supreme deity, ultimately, and it tells them that we're not created. It says we're a random accident. It says that we have no value other than what we give to ourselves. That's the postmodernism. And it tells us that our purpose for existing is only one thing, and that's because there is no nothing after this. This is it. And, and so our purpose for existing is to consume and to enjoy, to get as much as we can. And how much is that? Why, always just a little bit more. If there is a God, if, we want him to be omnipotent, ever-present, 
but not, or all-powerful, but not sovereign. Because then his power serves me. We dictate how this power is, is to be. We dictate it. We can, if we're influenced this way, we can inf- it can influence how we pray. We are the ones in the driver's seat. However, if he is omnipotent, all-powerful, and sovereign, the Lord of all, then we serve him. It's about position, dear sisters. Who is supreme? And this is where it comes home to us. Who is the highest in our life? Who is sufficient and enough? Who? Who? When you think about this, think about this. Who will save you in your situation now, your circumstances? Who will answer those deep questions of your life when you're standing there and you're going, Who am I? Why am I here? So that is for you to explore with Jesus, the approachable and knowable one, who is all this. The approachable and knowable icon that we can hold and touch and know. But sisters, he's all so much more. He's all this. So I thought we would end today by worshiping, which is where we want to end up. We want to know who this God is, and we want to be in a position of worship. And so, uh, one of the new hymns that I've been listening to a lot is by Andrew Peterson, and I bet you have too, and it's called, Is He Worthy? Have you heard this? I love it. I hope you'll look it up on YouTube. It's the most beautiful. And it's a call and a response. And we can't sing it because I don't have the music here, and I think that's okay. So I thought, well, what we can do is you have one or two word responses on is he worthy, and I'm going to ask you four questions. And at the end of each question, I would like for you to respond, we do, okay? We do is you. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? And the next four questions answer, it is. Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? And this, just listen. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave... He is David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? Respond, he is. Does, and on these four questions, answer, he does. Does our, the Father truly love us? He does. 
Does the Spirit move among us? And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? Does our God intend to dwell with us again? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, he is David's root, and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and glory and honor? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this?